I'm Leah Simone Bowen, the host of Podcast Playlist on CBC. We're a podcast discovery show, and we love a great story. So each week, we highlight the podcast we think you should check out. The show is a classic. Love how they select their topics. It's great. And from time to time, we're joined by some of the biggest names in podcasting. My name is Jamie Loftus. John Green. I'm Michael Hobbs. My name is Nicole Byer, and I have a podcast recommendation. You can find Podcast Playlist on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I hadn't thought about it quite in this way until Anoni said it. Is there a connection between the way that we treat our own feelings and maybe how we ignore them or we devalue them and how we treat our environment? Like, can you draw a line between your emotions and the way that we organize our society? Anoni is this very celebrated British musician. She doesn't claim to have any answers about this stuff, that's for sure. But she raises some interesting questions in her music and in our conversation. She'll also share a bit of wisdom that Lou Reed shared with her shortly before he died. Plus, you know that feeling of being stuck? The musician Noble Oak fights back against feeling stuck by making music that feels like you're traveling. He'll introduce you to his new song. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So there's this thing about the voice, like when you hear somebody sing, even if they're singing words that you have heard before, the exact same simple words that we use in daily life in casual ways, you can hear the entire depth of their own experience and beyond, like to the human condition itself in the way that their voice sounds. Have a listen to this. It must change. It must change. That's Anoni. That's music from her new album. It's called My Back Was a Bridge for You to Cross. This is her first album with her band, The Johnsons, in over a decade. They won a Mercury Prize together back in 2005. That is the very prestigious award for British and Irish musicians. Uh, Anoni was also nominated for an Oscar for the track Manta Ray. That was part of the soundtrack to the 2015 eco-documentary Racing Extinction. Anoni, as an artist, has never been afraid to tackle issues in her music, whether it's climate change or trans rights or inequality or oppression, tossing a stick of political dynamite. Her new one is just as powerful in terms of what Anoni has to say, but it's also tender. Anoni joined me from London, England to talk about it. Here's our conversation. Anoni, welcome to Q. Hi, thank you. <laughs> Glad to have you here. And I loved listening to this record. So I want to start by talking about the way that it began. You've said that the record came about as an impulse and that you, you contacted your label during COVID and said, I'd like to make a Blue-Eyed Soul record. So I'm wondering why, uh, why Blue-Eyed Soul? Um, a couple of reasons. Firstly, I learned how to sing by listening to British New Wave singers from the early 80s, people like Boy George and Elsa Moyer. And it wasn't until many years later that I really understood the lineage of that music or the or where where that sound came from. You know, a lot of those young English, even working class singers were singing in American accents. And I didn't really 
questioned it as a kid. You know, you just accepted it as a part of the culture. And um, as I got older, I um, and I moved to America. I started to hear more of the music that was the source material, or that that all of those waves of generations of British singers had borrowed from to reach that sort of ecstatic, emotional, transcendent sense of self-expression. And I started to hear Nina Simone and Donny Hathaway. Ray Charles. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy, all right long, all right long. You know, all of the great jazz singers. Stars shining bright above you. And I think I just, at that, by that point, you know, my my voice was sort of, um, had intuitively kind of formed around the, these examples of singers that had come before me. And um, I think... I wanted to circle the this whole paradigm, you know, of um, as complicated as it is, um, and start to try to understand why, why, why it is this way. Um, I started to think that that perhaps American singers taught British people, especially young people, in the fifties and sixties modeled a new strategy for not just survival, but jubilation in the face of often untenable circumstances. And I wondered why so many young British people reached for those voices as lifelines Mm. and imitated those voices in a hope of, um, of like catching some of the grace that they seem to embody. You know, I remember listening to Boy George when I was 12 years old. just crying and feeling this this huge ocean in my chest and I, I'd never felt that way before there, there was no opportunity culturally for me to feel that way except within this context of listening to someone imitating the singing of another culture of another people from another continent a continent that I knew nothing about and yet that was where the feeling, the depth the kind of the spiritual condition was being expressed through this hall of mirrors of voices that led back eventually to the source voices to the black American singers What was it? What was it for you? What did you have to survive that this music helped you um, work through? It helped me to hear a, an expression of the experience of life that matched the empirical experience of life, and 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 in the broader culture, there was a disconnect. You know, there was no connection between like the emotional experience people were having in their private hells and and the pedestrian reality of life in like post-war petrochemical first world society. And and music was a kind of a saving bomb and especially this kind of really emotional 
this kind of gracious emotion that was being expressed in a in a fully embodied way. Hmm. Let's hear some of the music from from your record. This is Anoni and the Johnsons with a bit of It's My Fault. I didn't do it I didn't do it But I knew that I did something wrong I didn't ask it From her latest album, My Back Was a Bridge for You to Cross, that's Anoni and the Johnsons with It's My Fault. Uh, Anoni, I love your voice so much. Um, and you, you had said just a moment ago that your sound, your singing was intuitively formed. Can you tell me a bit more about when it was that you discovered your own singing voice? Well, in England, singing was just normal at school, like all the kids sang. So it wasn't like in America, where I got to America and all the children were ashamed of singing. But in England, the kids all sang an assembly and it was just something that you just piled in and did at the top of your lungs. And there was a culture amongst young people where everyone wanted to be in bands and everyone wanted to sing, um, boys and girls. So it wasn't really like... I discovered my voice. It was just something normal that you did, like walking or running. And I was mostly drawing as a kid. Drawing was my main thing. And then um, around age 12, I shifted over to music because I think there was a more kind of urgency in singing, um, in the experience of of feeling embodied by singing that appealed to me Mm. at a time when when that was... um, more of a challenge for me. So I think that was when I shifted over and decided, okay, you know, especially as like a um, a gender variant person, like, and seeing these examples in popular culture, this is what I'm supposed to do, become a singer if I'm an artist. So that was when, but I was always really kind of multimedia. Even as a kid, I just always had my hands in everything. Mm. I love what you said about feeling embodied in singing. And I think that's such a powerful thing about about people who sing because you don't you don't when you sing think about like what what do I call this how do I identify where am I in space like you don't you almost don't have space to do that right like it's this it's you you need your entire physical being to to make sound and when you go to the music place like there isn't there isn't space for thought about all the things that we can get caught up in in daily life do you know what I'm saying yeah I mean for me it was it was pretty basic it was like am I allowed to have feelings anywhere? Hmm. And like feelings were something you were allowed to make sounds that express feeling through music. And that was the, that was the form, probably the only form that was really tolerated in popular culture where emotion could be expressed Hmm. in a way that was um, not just tolerated, but celebrated. Hmm. Because you know, emotions in my family were considered um, a, fe- a feminine paradigm, and so a sort of second-class way of of perceiving the world. They weren't. They weren't. Um, that they were grounds for being dis- excluded from conversations of reason. If you were having feelings, you were unreasonable, and if you were unreasonable, you weren't fit to make decisions. At, at any table of governance, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it, it was like basic grounds for, you know, it's, it's misogyny. It's like 
exclusion of archetypally female uh, paradigms or feminine paradigms. And feeling is a feminine paradigm. Not to say that it's the exclusive domain of women. Of course, it's not. It's everyone experiences it. But women have always been subjugated and penalized for feeling. It's been one of the reasons or grounds by which feminine people have been excluded from, as I said, like conversations of reason and tables of governance. Right. And then music and singing is this place where you're allowed, you're allowed to have that. Nobody's going to question that. And as you said, celebrate it. Well, my war as a kid was I have a right to have feelings. Hmm. You know, that was the war that I waged when I was about 10. And it, that became obviously sort of like, like I, my my role in my life has been in defense of of other modalities of experiencing and walking through life other than like kind of cruel, rationalist, post-secular, fundamentalist, patriarchal ways, hmm. you know? And so, you know, and for me, the, the, the bottom line for that was feelings are legitimate. What I feel inside my body is a, is a youthful indication of what's really happening. Wow. You know, which is exactly the opposite of what we're all being trained to do in daily life. Like, even with AI, like, even the scientists are saying, well, we're, we're they're even writing it down. The people inventing AI are saying, we're all terrified of this technology. But that, that emotion, that feeling isn't grounds for changing their trajectory because it's a feeling. Hmm. And the feelings are, are maligned in our society. In, in patriarchy, feelings are maligned and irrelevant. But if people had to t- make decisions based on feeling, a lot of the things we're doing couldn't continue. Things like? Like um, gut- gutting our ecosystem, suicidally gutting our, our environment, hmm. um, er- er- eradicating lifelines of species that are millions and millions of years old, um, torturing each other, um, stealing each other's resources, um, enslaving people, enslaving, enslaving uh, groups of people, enslaving demographics of people, um, killing gay or trans or gender variant children, um, uh, uh, enslaving girls, putting them in bags when they're 11 years old and telling them it's their fault that men want to come and kill them. Mm. It's harrowing stuff. Um, you you address uh, the the environment and and a lot of those feelings on the new record. And I want to play a little bit of the song uh, "Why Am I Alive Now." Here we go. Let's have a listen to this. Why am I alive now? I don't want to be witnessed. distress, aching of our world. That's a bit of Why Am I Alive Now by Anoni from uh, from her new album. And, I mean, this this song comes out, this album came out just when the world had its hottest July on record, uh, so many wildfires. The picture that you're painting on this song is very bleak, um, but also set to just beautiful music. So what did you want to express here, Anoni? Just how I really felt, you know? Just how I really felt. 
And I would say this song is central for me. It's the central song of the record because it um, it has a lot going on in it, like confusion and despair and a sense of values and things that reaching towards values and a proliferating broader environment that's embodied embodied in the music itself. Mm. So it's just a... Um, I think it's a, such a complicated time. I think everyone's, so many people are feeling this way in different ways. And I wanted to try to name it. And um, because it is so, um, it's a baseline for me. Mm. You know, I think it is, it's confounding to be in this unprecedented moment in, in humanity's story and to look out on a world that is so um, alienating and especially confounding from a, a position of privilege within that world uh, and um, to feel this ache of complicity um, as a consumer that can't seem to disengage from systems of consumption that promise the end of all things mm. and yet feeling the sort of inexorable entropy of a society that that seeks its own death in a way and and trying to understand as individuals with with our innocence and our um, tenderness and our vulnerability how it came to be that we were born in this moment and what our responsibility is to this moment the word tenderness that you that you brought up I've heard you bring it up a couple times in in relation to this album and and I think it's an interesting word and I guess I want to ask you about the tenderness but also um the personal feeling of guilt and complicity that you just mentioned I mean I'm thinking of also of the song it's my fault on the album and the lyric it's my fault the way I broke the earth so how are how do you hold those two things I guess the the guilt and complicity but then also the need for for tenderness especially to yourself as a as a person who was born in this time into these systems um, I don't have this all wrapped up. I'm just sort of naming all of these different aspects, almost like like many faces of of the experience. Mm -hmm. But um, like I don't have like a, a system, like a system analysis <laughs> of the whole thing. But it's like, but I I've spent like work over the last six or seven years addressing complicity. I did an album called Hopelessness in 2016. Hopelessness I feel the hopelessness And a lot of the songs were designed to sort of be like modular interrogations of my own complicity you know, because I, I'd grown tired of thinking that I was somehow a kind of passive victim. And indeed, that's probably the narrative that a lot of us sort of lean back into mm -hmm. is the idea that we're a passive victim of consumerism rather than the machination of it. Or as a taxpayer, for instance, like there's a song on the album called Drone Bomb Me. Drone Bomb Me Blow me from the mountain and I was just very ill to know that I was killing so many people as a taxpayer 
with money I was bringing back from touring overseas and then paying it back to the American government and they were using it to build drone bombs to exterminate uh, people in other parts of the world whose lives I didn't understand but with whom I would no doubt have had empathy if I had seen their faces. You know, the, the process of killing people in other parts of the world as a taxpayer is very abstract for most Americans, you know, and, and, and in other ways, this kind of, this doing of harm has been, was, has necessarily been obscured and obfuscated in order that we can continue to participate in reveling in the fruits of that harm, you know, in, in absorbing and sucking on the sugar cube, you know, mm. So it's important that we don't know where we come from, that we don't know what we're eating, that we don't know what we're consuming. It's important that we forget a longer line in order that we be more compliant and um, acquiesce to what the system that we've, that we've elected to employ is now asking of us. Mm. It's also brilliantly conceived because we subscribe to religions that for 2000 years have been telling us it's an inevitability that that we will ascend via some kind of apocalypse to um, a more spiritual dimension you know which is just the perfect kind of premise and the perfect kind of cover story for a vi- the virulent capitalist trajectory that was to follow you know and yet we all feel victim of of mm. our own preordained spiritual destiny as not just conquerors, but as the, as the ones that would leave, you know, as the ones that would spiritually transcend the biological, the physical world via apocalypse, you know, and that's all sublimated into like our supposedly secular systems, you know, like we all descend from hundreds of generations of evangelical thinking, even if we're one or two generations out from it, we can't pretend that, that all the systems aren't like imbued with it, like like a, a, a deep toxin in the water of all our structures. Mm. You know, our language, our religions, our, our social structures, our economic structures, our belief systems, and, and um, every aspect of our lives is structured by fundamentalists from a couple of generations earlier. You know, and even if we, we claim to now be abstaining from fundamentalism and like, you know, adhering to some kind of new fantasy that we're secular and post-sexist and, <laughs> and, and, and more realistic, like a deeper truth is that we're just um, fulfilling a script that's been laid out for us over 2,000 years. Mm. You know, and how do we disengage from this? How do we unpack it? How do we, how do, as artists, you know, my job as an artist is to try to tell the truth as best as I can with my um, very normal access to information. I just read the newspaper, Mm. you know, like I'm not, I don't have a doctorate. I'm not a, I'm just a normal person. I have just normal common sense. Like I read this thing that this woman, um, Vandana Shiva said, she's this eco-feminist from India and she's so brilliant. She said, you know, this is the knowledge that peasants have, that women have, that indigenous people have. And I just thought of my grandmother because she, she left school at 14, but she had, she was more capable of holding space for the, the real potential of eco-collapse than, uh, than her son who had a college education. 
Mm. You know, she said to me when I was 16 that she was going to have to knit some jumpers for the birds because they were forgetting to migrate. Mm. She'd read it in the local newspaper, you know, and, and she was somehow keep more keenly aware of just this balance of humanity within nature than her brilliantly educated, you know, first generation to go to college sons. And so I'm I'm thinking all about this idea of common sense and what Vendana Shiva talks about, that emotions are like common sense. You know, it's just it, it's it's just indications from our bodies that tell us what's really happening. And that's what they had to control in order to contain us. Deep thinker, right? It's kind of broke my brain when Anoni said that that her war as a kid was to just be able to have her feelings, right? Wow. Uh, Okay, so that was Anoni. Coming up, you'll hear more from her, including why she decided to put the face of Marsha P. Johnson on the cover of her new record. Marsha was a black activist and drag queen who was really important in the gay liberation movement in the 60s and 70s. Uh, So Anoni will tell you what happened when she met Marsha and also share some wisdom from Lou Reed. Plus, you'll hear from the musician Noble Oak, who will introduce you to a brand new song of his. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power, and Q is back in a bit. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. That's some of Anoni and the Johnsons with There Wasn't Enough. It's from their latest album called My Back Was a Bridge for You to Cross. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power here on Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with Anoni. Earlier, she was talking about how singers like Boy George and like Alison Moyet influenced her voice and how those influences went back to the jazz and soul of the 60s and 70s. Black artists like Nina Simone and Donny Hathaway but she's exploring all types of influences on this new album, not just musical, political, and social, too. And that's where we picked up the second part of our conversation. As we're, you know, talking about influ- influential figures on on thinking, um, I want to also ask you about meeting Marsha P. Johnson in 1992, um, renowned LGBTQ plus activist um, who was part of the Stonewall Uprising in the late 60s. And it's her face that we see on the cover of of this new record, um, would you, if you don't mind, just tell me a little bit about what it was like for you to meet her? Well, when I met her, she was 
renowned. She was basically almost homeless. She was living like on a friend's sofa. Yeah. And she's become renowned because Netflix made a documentary about her in 2016. But um, before then, she was basically just a kind of a neglected figure in an obscure, in an obscure corner of history. Mm-hmm. And um, she was mostly just known to people that knew her, you know, or people, yeah, basically people that knew her and I knew people from uh, that knew her who were older than me and they were my mentors and they used to point towards her and say, she's someone you should respect. She's someone very special in our community. Hmm. She's a living saint. She's like a, the saint of Christopher Street. She's a kind of a living bodhisattva. So as a 20-year-old, I just was taught by two or three people that she was someone to honor and respect who lived on the streets in the West Village. And um, and I learned about STAR, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and that she'd built, that she'd helped to found a, a kind of a group home for other sex workers and young kids, gay kids that on the streets in the West Village. And there were still a lot of kids living on the in that period, even in the early 90s, it was still the middle of AIDS and it was a very tumultuous time. And there was a lot of strife still in, in that specific district of Manhattan. And I was just blown away that she'd had that that they'd so ingeniously forged this coalition called Star in 1972. It just was so revolutionary and so visionary, and it was everything that I cared about hmm. as a kid. It was every, everything that everything that I'd hoped for, everything that I would hope to to um, that I was somehow connected to, and and. Um, so I just, when I met, I only met her once, only in passing, I approached her and just told her I loved her. That was it. And then actually a few days later, she passed away. And um, that was quite a cataclysmic moment for me. I It changed a lot of things for me, just by virtue of being in a certain place at a certain time. It just, it was just a very, the whole period was a very tumultuous period in New York's history. As a young kind of queer person, trying to understand where you came from. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, the way that you're just describing the impact of, of meeting her and then her passing, I mean, what, what did it change for you? What, what, was, what was the direct impact of her passing on, on your life? Well, it was just clear that um, like her death was violent and um, it was life on life's terms. Like, that um, heroic people, people holding crucial seats of moral authority in the subculture that I cared about were not being held up or um, supported in in their work and they were um, paying a bit of price for the work they did. And um, that's part of our illness as a species, I think right now, or at least as within certain cultures, it's a part of our brokenness that the people doing some of the most generous work are, um, are not held in a dignified way by the society that they're serving. Why did you want to put her face on the cover of your album? To me, she's always been like a figure of moral authority and and um, kind of a, a North Star and a heroine. And um, I named my group after her in 1995. I started doing plays about Marsha P. Johnson. I did a play called The Ascension of Marsha P. Johnson in 1995. And um, 
I started performing as the Johnsons. And in those days, everyone thought I was making some kind of joke or something, (laughs) but they didn't know, they, they didn't know who she was. And to me, it was just like, kind of, I just kept telling the story over and over again about who she was, wherever I went or whatever I did. And I traveled around the world, did concerts with symphonies. Then did a lot of work all over the world as Anthony and the Johnsons. Hope there's someone who'll take care of me when I die. Will I go? But um, people didn't really, most people didn't understand what that, what what was encoded in that name. So after the marshes finally emerged, her myth started to emerge from the tectonic plates shifted, and she emerged as a figure in the imagination of a, a new generation of young people, as someone. You know, a lot of young people now seeing her in the way that I saw her when I was a young person, but my generation, for the most part, didn't do that. They didn't connect the dots, and there was just too much trauma, and people were just, everything just fell through the cracks. Mm. But time passes, and people also like, people also really like dead people more than they like living people. Mm. You know, look at, look at Sinead O'Connor, like everyone's. Like, you just only have to be dead two weeks for people to to say how great you were, you know. But, like, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to deride you while you're still alive or, you know. So there's something broken in us that um, that, that we're afraid to be too close to a living embodiment of, of ethical behavior. Mm. We prefer the models, our, our moral authorities, to be, like one step removed from this world, because then it kind of, I think it more closely resembles the reality of how we feel within our own moral structure, because we're not able to embody ethical behavior. I think it's difficult to be around or to witness people who are embodying ethical behavior. It's easier to lionize them once they're dead. Mm. Um, We're going to go out on another piece of music from the album. And this is a song that touched me so deeply and then I read a little bit about what it was about and had to listen again and it just layers on layers on layers and the song is uh, Sliver of Ice Um, so before we play it I'm wondering if you can tell me what inspired this song I had a mentor who was um, a huge figure in my life and helped me to um, kind of overcome a lot of obstacles and he sort of insisted on my visibility as a as a musician at a time when like a gender variant person in my kind of body was not going to be taken seriously in the music industry it was um lou reed who had a band called the velvet underground and when he he passed away a few years ago and um in the months before he was before he left he um said some very inspiring things to me, including once he called me and told me that he was having this kind of ecstatic experiences in, in, in these banal situations, like, you know, like a, a carer had put us a, a shard of ice on his, in his mouth because he was dehydrated and it had just been um, such a rapturous experience for him, the sensation of the coldness in his mouth and just the feeling of being alive had been so 
so vital and invigorating for him. And he told it to me almost like a kind of a spiritual experience that he'd had of, of, of having this piece of ice in his mouth. And, um, and so I wanted to write a song kind of that started from this notion that he'd shared with me. And that's what this song was. It was a song I wrote just after he died, Lou Reed died. It's such a gorgeous song, and, and we'll play it now. Anoni, thank you so much for this conversation and for, for your music. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. That's Anoni and the Johnsons with Sliver of Ice. Before that, you heard my conversation with Anoni where she talked about Lou Reed and his uh, rapturous experience of feeling a piece of ice in his mouth before he died. Imagine that. Uh, Anoni and the Johnsons' latest album is called My Back Was a Bridge for You to Cross, and it's out now. Okay, have a listen to this. Okay, what you're listening to now is a song called Derailed. It's by Vancouver singer-songwriter Noble Oak from his album Horizon, which came out in early 2020. You remember that time the world was just about to derail with the onset of the pandemic. Noble Oak, real name Patrick Fiore, was all set to play this song and a few others off the new album at Juno Fest in Saskatchewan when everything shut down. Now, three years later, he's got a new album out. It is called When It Finds You, and I'm happy to speak to Noble Oak and have him set up a song from his album. Welcome to Q. 
Thanks so much, Talia, for having me. It's great to be on the show. Yeah, happy to have you here. So we can all remember and maybe get just a little shiver down our spines when we think about when COVID first shut the world down. Oh, yeah. Could you tell me your story? What were you supposed to do that that very day? I was uh, firmly living my double life as a musician slash um, audiovisual engineer. I was actually at the Junos for two distinct reasons. I was there to play some songs at, as part of Juno Fest at uh, two different uh, shows. And I was also there to be one of the video engineers for the gala festival uh, itself uh, and the awards dinner. Uh, and we were in the middle of... Uh, just finishing installing all of the equipment in the Saskatoon Conference Center Hall when we got the call on radio to stop work, come to the control table and have the very real conversation uh, that everything was stopping, which also meant my shows were stopping and we had to just cut and run, tear it all down and go home. So it was it was quite a time. Ugh. Well, I imagine there was a period of, of come down from that or maybe like lunch bag letdown. But Definitely. at what point were you able to start making music again? Uh, I guess, you know, over the next couple of weeks as I, I returned home, it, it actually kind of timed out well. I got a I, I was able to welcome a synthesizer into my family that I've been waiting for for a very long time, the Dave Smith, Tom Oberheim, OB6. So that actually inspired a few cool little songs to come out right out of the gate. But it was around that time that my sort of, uh, you know, my my creative flow was obviously kind of coming into question with the world changing and all the dynamics of the world changing so rapidly. And it was around that time that I started to realize how delicate uh, the creative process was for me. And uh, it started to become a little bit, I'd say, trickier to get into that place where I could make music. Is that part of the title, like the title of the album is When It Finds You? Is that the, the yes. it that you're talking about? Exactly. The it is inspiration. The it is ideas. The it is uh, the ethos and everything we feel surrounding um, those inspirational moments we find. When I think about everything that you've just said and the music that you make, like your music has a, a motion to it. It has a forward, it has a forward motion. It has a drive to it. It makes me think of travel. It makes me think of going places. And it's interesting to think about that music and how it's impacted by feeling stuck or like when everything around you shuts down. So tell me, tell me how that works. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, I'm like, and happy to hear you say that because I feel like I do get a lot of my musical ideas when I'm personally moving through the world, if I'm on a train or a plane or a bike ride or just walking. For a long time, I, I don't think I ever liked the process of being in transit. I always wanted to get there. But I think maybe through music, I was able to sort of relish the the experience of moving and, and being in transit. And I think being going through the COVID time was like being in transit for everybody. We were all just sort of moving through this process together, this collective experience we had. Totally. And it was all process. Like I was writing a lot too during that time. And it was like without a without a sense of what anything can be at an end, like without a sense right. of a record coming out being the end or a tour being the end. All you can focus yes. on is the means. Like it's it's just process. It's just being Absolutely. in the moment as you're moving. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I think uh I think because we all had to stand still and sit still in our homes and avoid contact with people that we were so used to being in contact with, our jobs, our loved ones, et cetera. We all had to remember what it was like to be still. And now our plates are starting to fill up again. And 
I'm sure, you know, there is, there's a welcome feeling to that, to be back in, in that, in a flow of some sort again, but it's definitely, I think it definitely has a different flavor after being stationary for so many years. Yeah. So you're going to introduce us to the song Evening Star. Can you tell me how this song came to you? Um, This song came to me while reflecting on a couple of uh, heart-rending moments that I had in 2020 and also reflecting on a parallel sort of uh, dark moment that was in uh, 2015 um, when several friends of mine and I lost a friend of ours in an incident that happened at Harrison Lake. Uh, oh, and sorry. I was, it's okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but yeah, we were, I was reflecting on a few of these moments and, um, this, this sort of line of, you know, thinking about holding these loved ones in my arms, uh, kind of really just reverberated in my head. And I, I started with this chorus, uh, and from there I was able to build out a song and, and, uh, that was one of the, the fortunate songs that came together all sort of in the span of an evening. And as I was sort of wrapping up the first pass of the song, I looked outside and I know from uh, from reading the news that it was going to be an evening we could see uh, Venus, our evening star in the sky. And certainly I could. It was a clear night and I could see it just hovering hmm. right outside my window. So I had to I had to give it the title of evening star. Would you introduce it for us? Yeah, of course. This is Noble Oak and you're listening to my song Evening Star right here on Q.
That's Noble Oak with a new song called Evening Star from his new album called When It Finds You. And that's it for Q today. Hey, next week on the show, we are celebrating 50 years of hip-hop. You'll hear from some of the the trailblazers in the genre and some up-and-coming voices, too. So look out for that. Tomorrow on the show, Zarna Garg is hilarious. She's absolutely hilarious. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Get this. Zarna left India when she was a teenager. She didn't want to be uh, in an arranged marriage. Came to America, became a lawyer got married, had kids, left her job as a lawyer, stay-at-home mom for 16 years until her kids were like, Mom, you are so funny. You need to do stand-up comedy. Now she's taking the comedy world by storm, and uh, her kids were right. Zarna Garg on the show tomorrow. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.